0: I can't say what I hope that we find, because I don't know, but I just hope that this sets a standard that you can do science, that is, looking into phenomena, whatever that phenomena may be. And I think that's one of the ways we can, at least as young people, like help this discussion is to just talk about it more and do it in a sense that isn't talking about sci-fi movies, but actually talking about people's jobs and, and how they're engaging with it.
1: Welcome to Merge i'm ryan graves today we're joined by abby white abby is a research fellow with the galileo project at the harvard and smithsonian center for astrophysics today we'll explore her early involvement in this field and her work at the galileo project i hope you enjoy this episode of the merge podcast now abby White. all right abby thank you for joining me today
0: sure thanks for having me
1: (laughs) so i understand you are a fellow at the galileo project. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: Awesome. Well, before we get into that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, your educational background and where you grew up and kind of what took you up to being part of that project, that effort.
0: Sure, absolutely. So um, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania called Why Missing. Uh, if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you would recognize that, that that's where Taylor Swift is from, before she moved to Nashville. Uh, so I spent, you know, most of my life there. Uh, for college, I wanted to experiment, go to a new city, do something fun. So I went up to uh, Wellesley College, which is 12 miles west of Boston. And that's where I completed my undergraduate education. So I was there for four years. Um, my, my decisions about, you know, pursuing different academic areas changed a lot while I was there. Not too much, but um, so I arrived and I knew I wanted to study math. I always loved math, uh, but, you know, the math major was pretty short, and I, you know, was ambitious. I wanted to try something else as well. Uh, Wellesley is a historically women's college and a liberal arts institution. So what that means is you basically are encouraged, or actually you have to, uh, take a bunch of different classes for distribution requirements, so that you know your learning is is really rounded out and well rounded. So I, uh, as for that reason, I had to take a science class. And in high school, I don't know, science just didn't do it for me. I actually hated physics. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I love math. I know, but I loved math. So I was like, oh, give me equations. That's fine. But I just, I don't know. I wasn't into it. Uh, and I didn't have any good reason why. I just didn't, didn't feel like it. Uh, so then I was kind of dreading the science requirement at Wellesley. Um, and I was looking around the course browser and I saw there was astronomy. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. When will I ever have the chance to, uh, you know, look through a telescope we have a couple of different domes with def- different telescopes so I thought you know this would just be an amazing way to see a new part of campus and you know do something that's science but maybe not purely some other areas where I just didn't wasn't drawn to in high school
1: not ready so. to commit your life to it quite at that point
0: yeah exactly so I just take a class you know thinking nothing of it signing up for it I went through the entire class had a great time but you know again like didn't think much of it uh, until about a year later I, I was really into math and computer science, but then I started thinking about career paths, you know, after college and I was like, I don't really want to be a software engineer. Like, I don't want to sit at my computer all day and just write code. Uh, but I also, you know, don't want to be stuck in a room by myself writing proofs. Not that that's what mathematicians do. Uh, but in my mind, I was like, okay, I like these two things, but I just don't, there's no career that is combining these two, you know, areas that it's in a way that I think is really cool and I'm really excited about. So then I got back to this astronomy class and I was like, okay, well, I did a lot of math in that class and I know astronomers code so maybe I should you know take another class so I had this thought I signed up for a physics class you know which I was nervous Mm -hmm. for uh but I ended up just loving it I think taking that class in the historically women's college environment was what made it so different Mm -hmm. so you know prior to that in high school I was one of the only girls in my you know math and and science courses Uh, And I went to public high school, so, you know, there was, you know, not tons, tons of resources to, you know, engage specifically, like, girls in STEM. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, I think just being in that atmosphere, you know, I was so encouraged to make mistakes and not be afraid to, like, raise my hand and ask questions. Um, I could do the homework without being ridiculed for being, like, a nerd. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I just, I loved it for that reason. And then... Do you feel uh, like,
1: if I may interrupt, do you feel like when you were at, you know, the educational facility, you said that was the high school Uh, you're at and it was mostly uh, mostly boys in that type of STEM education it would that lead you to being more uncomfortable the kind of raising your hand and asking those questions because of that dynamic just because you're afraid to fail or just didn't want to I don't know what
0: yeah so I guess I have like specific memories of being in like my AP calculus course Mm -hmm. and the most of the girls like sat at the front of the classroom and then there was like almost a peanut gallery of guys that would sit in the back of the classroom and I specifically remember, like, I would do the homework assignments because, well, for AP courses, you're paying to take the exam to get college credit. So I was like, well, if I'm paying to be here, you know, I, I want to make the most out of it. So I would do the homework, as one does, and uh, I would ask questions about the homework. Every, that's how class started, the The teacher uh, would always open with, you know, does anyone have any questions about the homework? And I always did. <laughs> uh, so every time I'd raise my hand, it would, there, someone would make a comment or something from the back of the classroom and kind of just say, like, we get it, you did the homework, or, like, <laughs> whatever, like, let's move on to class. Mm-hmm. And I think that just really, you know, maybe subconsciously kind of contributed to me. You know, I'd sit in class and think, okay, I've asked this many questions today. I don't want to ask any more. So, you know, I've reached my quota, mm-hmm. which is just, that's so unfortunate because, you know, everyone should be encouraged to learn and ask questions if they don't understand something. Uh, so I guess at, that's...
1: At least when you were at Wellesley, you seem to be surrounded by people that were, you know, interest, also engaged in what they were learning on, on the science side or yeah. because it was a little arts college, mm-hmm. did was it more kind of a spectator sport there, the science?
0: Yeah, I think it depended on which courses you were in, you know. So when you're taking these introductory courses, there'd be people who were, you know, pre-med uh, or, or, or who were humanities majors mm-hmm. and, you know, had no intention of pursuing it after. But I think that made for a really dynamic classroom because everyone has something different to offer and different mm-hmm. skill sets. So having all those different opinions and, and viewpoints in one room, I think, just made it like an amazing experience. Cool. So.
1: Yeah. And so you seem to kind of enjoy that experience. Then, yes, you you stuck with
0: yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I never finished the story. But um, so I was in this physics class, and I was actually in this class when I got the email. Everyone that was in college during uh, March 2020 knows what uh, I'm referring to. The email that we're being sent home uh, and are not COVID. returning for yeah, COVID. So mm-hmm. we're not not returning for the spring semester. So everyone is shocked. We stop class. We're like, okay, if you want to leave, go ahead. Like if you need to process this in your own way. So COVID happens, you know, I head back home. My family had moved to Savannah, Georgia at this point, and that's where we are now. Um, So I went back to Georgia, and I just did a lot of, like, inward reflection um, and just thinking about, again, like, post-grad, what do I want to do? You know, I don't come from a family of scientists, so I didn't really know what was out there in terms of, like, science opportunities or what even, like, PhD programs or graduate school looked like. I really had no exposure to that. Uh, But anyway, on a whim, I signed up to take observational astronomy, and this gave me the opportunity to, from my bedroom in Georgia, control a telescope, 0.7 meter telescope up at Wellesley. And that just like blew my mind. So I think probably within days after, you know, imaging some star clusters, I declared a second major and just said, you know, it's my junior fall. I got two years. Uh, let's just, you know, pedal to the metal. Let's get this done. So at that point, it just became a race to finish as many you know requirements as I could um, and just do do as much research as I possibly could. Because I, w- I wasn't the girl who was you know, looking up at the stars when I was really young and thinking, oh, I wonder what's out there. And, and I just wasn't a space kid. Mm-hmm. And I didn't watch Star Wars or Star Trek or any of that. I just kind of fell into it very accidentally. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's how I ended up at Astro. Uh, but I guess then comes the Galileo Project, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a fun story. So that uh, was my senior spring. And, uh, you know, so last semester, near in the end, it's insight. And I have a a professor who um, I'm very close with and, or close, he was an academic, very important academic mentor for me. Um, And he approached me and he said, I have an opportunity to do an independent study, which basically just meant, you know, I get to control the terms of the project and I can do it at my own pace and then, you know, produce some kind of written report at the end, summarizing everything I've learned. Uh, And he approaches me and he says, oh, would you like to do an independent study on exotic solar system ices? And I'm thinking, I where did this come from? <laughs> I have, you know, I took planetary science with him, but I didn't have too much experience with chemistry or anything, but I was like, okay. I, you know, I really look up to him and I would love to work with him, you know, on a independent study and, you know, really improve my ability to do science by myself and not just, you know, doing problem sets and taking Was
1: exams. this in line with what you were doing? in the undercourse as the observational astronomy? Was it related to that or was it a different subset of oh, something
0: I think it was a different subset. So it definitely leaned more like planetary science. Mm-hmm. So I was looking more at uh, something called spectroscopy of ices. So looking at uh, what they look like in, in that area uh, of science. So it wasn't, I wasn't looking at like stars and, and galaxies and whatnot. It was more at like uh, objects. range. Yeah. So I guess it was um, like comets and asteroids is really kind of where it falls. So... I started doing this independent study, and my professor is like, "Okay." Uh, and actually, in a different class, with this professor, mm-hmm. uh, he starts talking about the Galileo project and uh, how it was kind of sparked by this uh, object that was observed in 2017 called Oumuamua. I'm not sure. Have you heard of? I have, Oumu- yes. Yeah. So, subject that that flew by interstellar object. Um, that they didn't really know what it was. They, you know, there's different hypotheses out there. You know, nitrogen iceberg, hydrogen iceberg, um, and then there's this other hypothesis which is, was presented by uh, Dr. Avi Loeb at Harvard, and he claimed that maybe this object could be uh, a remnant of, you know, an extraterrestrial civilization, like basically space junk that is from another uh, system that flew by our solar system and we observed it. Just because there are a couple properties that were just like
1: weird about it. What properties?
0: Yeah, I think um, there were there was non-gravitational acceleration when it ran around the sun. So no, like it basically had a kick, I believe, in its in its speed. Uh, but
1: so as it was going around the sun and near the sun, you would expect it to accelerate due to the gravity, but it right. was accelerating, but it was accelerating faster than what you would expect.
0: Yeah, it? exactly. So it kind of it was almost like a kick. Like mm-hmm. it, I think, to my understanding, from what I recall of that, um, and. It, it had no tail, cometary tail. So when you see a comet, usually it's tail that's coming from uh, as it gets closer to the sun, it's, you know, heating up and uh, the ice starts to turn into gas through a process called sublimation. Uh, and, you know, there's no tail. Mm. So I was like, OK, well, we can't call this thing a comet because it doesn't have a tail. Mm. Uh, but it experiences kind of, you know, non-gravitational acceleration. So what could this thing be? Um, and I think, you know, Avi got a lot of criticism for that hypothesis. But it's like we didn't have enough data to say if it was true or not. Um, but anyway, so then that's basically what my research was without me knowing. It was related to the Galileo Project and, and one of their uh, other branches, which is, you know, looking at interstellar objects and their origins. Okay, So that's that's how I fell into it.
1: It's so, a long story. <laughs> so, yeah. So your your professor at Wellesley brought you into a project studying uh, ice fragments within the solar system, which typically gets classified as, as comets or
0: asteroids. Yeah, or asteroids. Asteroids, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and... In this particular case, there was an interesting comet or asteroid or something else that everyone assumed was a, a comet, but it didn't have the characteristic um exactly. Yeah, the characteristics of of one and performed some interesting things. So yeah. that was your introduction to a very cool. Yes.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> so how so that was your introduction to what it was? Yes. Um what what did you think when you when you heard that? Was this something you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, or was it did you kind of have to step back and kind of reevaluate what you were, what you were being offered in a sense to to study?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I basically signed up to do the independent study uh, so early that when I actually found out what it was about, it was, it was pretty much too late for me (laughs) to to make any other decision, but I was fine with that. You know, I was like, this is my senior spring. Like I'm not going to get these chances to engage in this kind of research again. Uh, and even so, the research is, is valuable for many other applications. Uh, so basically what I was doing, and actually there's a paper from the Galileo Project that's coming out uh, this spring. I don't know exactly when um, about this, but it was accepted. So that's exciting. Um, I'm one of the co-authors on it, so it's oh, cool. Great, great. Uh, thank you. But it's about, you know, physical considerations that we would take if we would want to rendezvous with a interstellar object that was coming by. So the first question is, well, how do you determine that something is weird so, uh, you know, if we could look at something using spectroscopy and say, oh, well, this is made of water and carbon and, you know, hydrogen. OK, well, that's probably not super interesting to us. We've seen things like this. It's probably just, you know, a comet. Sure. So that in that case, we wouldn't want to rendezvous. But in the case of the Muamua, what would have been awesome is if we had something saying, hey, this thing is weird for X, Y, Z reason. Let's go out to it and investigate it. So we'd send something out there to fly by with it, rendezvous, Before maybe get some late. close-up imagery or take some other uh, measurements of the object. And then we could better understand what the thing was. Because that's the thing about Muamua, we just didn't have enough information to, you know, say what it was, or we didn't have, you know, modeling that would allow us to come to a definite conclusion. So it kind of just remains this like open question and it flew away from us. So we're not ever going to catch up to it again.
1: So. Why is it so difficult to, to either find or to rendezvous with these?
0: I mean, they're flying at just, like, really insanely high speeds. So, um, I think, I don't know the exact speeds. Part of me thinks maybe 10 kilometers a second.
1: So, it's kind of like a bullet coming into the solar system from somewhere else. Oh, yeah. It's flying so fast. Okay. So, it's on, like, a totally different scale of the planets, things of that nature.
0: Right. It's not in this nice orbit, this stable orbit around the sun. Like, everything's moving. It's coming in. And, you know, maybe it flies by Jupiter, and it might, you know, Jupiter has large mass. So it's going to change. Uh, it's going to influence it with gravity and it might change trajectories and everything. So it's really hard to I mean, we have good models for how when things are coming in, where to predict that they're going to end up. But, um, you know, in terms of like, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint where something's going in, have, you know, something out in space that's going to fly to it, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's moving so fast. Uh, and it just costs a lot of money.
1: So. But we've done that with other comments, correct?
0: Yeah, or there was, I think, recently uh, something demonstrated. It was it was for more uh, national, I guess you would call it national security. I don't know what, what the official term would be. Uh, but a group kind of flew out. a a probe or something of nature to smash into an asteroid to change its direction, Mm -hmm. of course. So we want to smash into the thing, uh, unless it's coming at us, then uh, (laughs) we definitely want to do that. But this would more just be like a flyby, let's get some imagery or maybe Mm close-up spectroscopy or other things of that nature about this object, just so we can say more, because we just don't have enough data to describe it. And
1: they're moving so fast, we would either need to have things out there ready to intercept, or we'd have to detect it at an early enough uh, position to send something out.
0: Exactly. So it's, it's kind of like that. It's it's a uh, give and take. So you want to have uh, maybe some facilities on Earth that are, you know, looking uh, like the C Rubin Observatory that are like looking for these objects in the sky. And maybe once you see one and observe one, you're like, OK, well, we maybe have this uh, some kind of probe or something out in space in a stable orbit uh, waiting for a green light. And it's like, OK, I'm waiting for this on on Earth observatory to signal that this thing is weird. Once that happens, we can say, okay, go ahead, fly. So it's, you know, it's really hard to determine that, you know, certain things about an object when it's so far away. So that's why we lean to spectroscopy, because it is one of those things that we can see. Um, And that basically
1: just... At distance.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's something you can measure with distance, and it just gives you signatures um, of, of, you know, different uh, wavelengths, and you can see absorption and emission lines, and then determine, based on our research in labs, those are consistent, usually... Uh, whether you observe them on Earth or out in space, so you can see, okay, this we know if there's a dip here, this means that this is the composition. Uh, so I think they're starting to do that now with JWST and exoplanet atmospheres. James Webb. So James Webb Space mm-hmm. Telescope, yes. So
1: Very good. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> uh, what are we using to detect these smaller objects before they get in the solar system if we can? Do we have that capability yet, or do we have to wait for them to get closer and then we find them and we can figure out they came from external to our solar system after the fact
0: yeah so I actually don't know too much about that uh myself but I know like for instance another aspect of the Galileo project uh another branch along still still working towards that interstellar object origins kind of research goal um, is they have an expedition going out to Papua New Guinea that's looking to retrieve fragments of an interstellar object So uh, that, for instance, they were able to track that trajectory and then based on its trajectory determine okay, this did not come from our solar system. So I think that's just like theoretical physics, you know, calculating trajectories. Um, But at that point, I think you have to wait till it's close enough that we can, you know, resolve it and see it in the Mm -hmm. sky with our telescopes. And I mean, telescopes are getting better every year. So as we get more and more telescopes or even things out into space, you know, you don't have to fight the atmosphere when you're observing, you know, you're not uh, inhibited by a cloudy night per Mm se. So you know as as you know even more as like private space companies come into the sphere, I don't know how open they are with their data, but uh you know as we get more this as these technologies develop and as we just get simply more of them, uh there'll be more eyes on the sky
1: so um, well, one of the things I understand that uh for the for the object um that is in the ocean that the Galileo project or um, dr avi Loeb was talking about going and investigating um they had. Uh, They had a supposition about that particular object, and they were waiting for additional data from uh, classified systems to confirm Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not the trajectory was truly extrasolar. Right. That's my understanding. Can you speak to that at all?
0: Yeah, I wish I could speak more to it. I'm actually, that's the one branch that I haven't really, you know, been involved with too much but I know I think they were able to there was some calculation that they were doing where they were just trying to pinpoint like where exactly it was um, and I think they were waiting on information there because uh, the government had tracked it because you know if something's flying into the earth the government's on it <laughs> uh, so since it was the ocean you know it wasn't a threat or anything but uh, they were trying to you know pinpoint that location uh, and I think they were waiting for more data for that front but uh, I think they were able to make progress with their calculations or something to improve the resolution but that's That's as far as I know. Yeah, I think I remember them being a little bit frustrated, I guess, with the fact that they were trying to do this for science and, you know, the government wasn't necessarily cooperating, but they have their reasons and and we have ours, so.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a trend that I've seen and it's not necessarily uh, a negative thing. Um, We put a lot of money and effort into developing weapons and systems and sensors uh, within the government. And those things typically um, we like to hide how well they work obviously from our adversaries. exactly yeah and so you know this is uh it doesn't necessarily mean the information that is captured is classified but just the fact that you could detect something at a particular range or know the size or the resolution um and that's what we see a lot in um the unidentified anomalous phenomenon area um when i was flying we were seeing objects on the radar the objects themselves weren't necessarily classified uh at least no one told me that Mm -hmm. um but the systems we are capturing it on, such, right. such as the radars and everything else, were classified. In um, the Galileo Project now, you know, I believe one of their taglines is that the sky is not classified.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but maybe you can talk about what their goals are now and how they're trying to essentially gather data outside the realm of, of government oversight.
0: Sure. So at a high level, I would say the goal of the Galileo Project is to bring the search for signatures of extraterrestrial civilizations to a standard where there is rigorous scientific investigation and there are, you know, credible instruments and people behind these discoveries, basically bringing science to the conversation, because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's something that's been perhaps missing uh, in in recent history. So, I mean...
1: Why do you I, think that is?
0: I wish I knew. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that because i think you know most people i talk to even friends colleagues family uh are so interested in the subject and they're like yeah totally like we should look at something we don't understand it um and i think the only thing that that i can justify this with is just that it it makes people and authority uncomfortable so i guess what i mean by that is and i guess we've seen this kind of in different cases in a little bit different ways so With astronomy, there is, like, dark matter and dark energy. This has, you know, been shown to make up a vast majority of our universe. But scientists really don't know what's going on with it. That's why we call it dark matter and dark energy. Because we're like, oh, it's dark. We don't know what it is. Uh, So there's a whole study about, like, trying to figure out what exactly that is. Um, And for some reason, that is fine to do. You know, when we don't understand something, okay, let's look into it. But when it comes to UAP, that same logic isn't applied. And I think this kind of has to play into what I might foresee as a paradigm shift occurring in the future if we would make more progress. So what I mean by that, um, a paradigm is basically a belief system or theory that provides like a unifying explanation for a set of phenomena mm-hmm. or, you know, in, in some field. So a set of phenomena in some field. And it usually also suggests methods for which uh, ideas are tested or knowledge is advanced. So, uh, paradigms, you know, are upheld in numerous ways, uh, one being the power of authority, right? So, if the authority figures are kind of speaking this paradigm and, and you know, people are buying into it, that, you know, people aren't going to go against authority for many, for many and various reasons. Uh, so, that keeps paradigms in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have the human experience. We're imperfect. So, you're going to have, uh, you know, people are irrational sometimes. We are emotionally attached to certain ideas. We also have, you know, denialism when it comes with coping with cognitive dissonance. Uh, And then we also, you know, have this taboo stigma and ridicule that comes with ideas that are outside of these paradigms. So I think two examples that, you know, we've seen in what I might say is recent history um, are like heliocentrism and germ theory. So heliocentrism is the idea that the sun is at the center of the universe. Or sorry, not the universe, the solar system sun is at the center of the solar system. And this was not agreed upon for, you know, a long time. They thought, you know, the Earth was the center of everything and everything was rotated around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, this is where the Galileo Project got our name from. Uh, Galileo uh, used his telescope to make observations to find direct evidence that was disproving this, this idea that the Earth was at the center of the solar system. Yeah, paradigm. Yeah, exactly. So people refused to look through his telescope because they were either freaked out, authority figures were like, well, we don't want to deal with the aftermath, you know, of a paradigm shift, because, you know, people, who knows what that's going to
1: do? It's disrupt the to... status quo.
0: Yes, exactly, disrupt the status quo. So people refused to look through his telescope, and then eventually, you know, more and more people just came out with this, and they're like, guys, this just doesn't make sense. Uh, so they're like, okay, we're going to throw that whole Earth-centric theory out, and now we've adopted heliocentrism. And now, you know, people in our age, oh, yeah, sun's the center of the solar system. We'd never doubt it. Mm-hmm. And that just had to come along with time uh and then germ theory which i don't know too much about i'm not <laughs> in the medical field but i think it's the idea that um certain diseases are caused by like microorganisms invading the body so that was something that wasn't you know necessarily agreed upon it that, was yeah. controversial yeah so it's like you don't get scarlet letter stamped with the disease it's like oh, there are actually things that can like just make you sick uh, and then you can pass it to one another in that way so it's funny to think about those things i'm like oh that's so insane mm-hmm. uh so i think you know Dare I say we may be on the verge of something, whether it comes to, you know, dark matter, dark energy, quantum mechanics, all that. There might be a paradigm shift and that's going to happen with that. Uh, but even UIP, I think I think to answer your question, that is why um, it hasn't received the scientific attention is because it's it's scary. People are scared of it. Mm.
1: It is. Yeah. And I think it also um, even perhaps more so than um, heliocentricity uh, directly attacks our kind of high status as um you know, are our only inhabitants of this universe, in a sense, right? It directly challenges our our place there. Um, Our heliocentricity, wait, that's the right word? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs)
0: heliocentrism or whatever.
1: um, Heliocentrism (laughs) redefines our place in the universe, but this really defines our, you know, our position of ourselves within the universe.
0: Exactly, Um, yeah.
1: And, yeah, that can be scary. That can be scary. Do you think science... Do you think science can overcome that just with data? Or do you think there's going to be other, you know, sociological, um, I don't know what the right word is, tools or, you know, things that we need to do to move people past this barrier? Or is it truly, do you think just about data and communication?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that you can kind of have one of those things without the other. So your science is nothing if you can't communicate it. Mm -hmm. So... And that goes for all sciences. Do you think
1: that's gonna be enough though for some people to?
0: See yeah, the no, data? I don't. I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. Which is unfortunate. I mean, me as a scientist, I'm like, yeah, show me the data. Like that's mm-hmm. good for me. But I know not everyone's like that. Um, some people, I think, if you don't have a site, a citing story, you know, you might not be within the the UAP community. You might be like, oh, well, you don't really, you haven't seen it. You're not really one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't experienced that, but I can imagine that that might be the kind of mentality that some people have with it. Um, again, I haven't experienced that, so. Uh, I can't say for sure, but I do think, you know, that's why the Galileo Project, we have a societal implications group. And, you know, those are philosophers, social scientists who are just really thinking about, you know, once we publish papers and are getting data, how is that, how are we going to communicate that? And how is that going to impact, you know, society as a whole?
1: Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. When do you guys have papers coming out in that direction?
0: Um, I'm not sure, actually. I think uh, we have one, two papers that are kind of, you know, higher level, and I'm, I'm hoping they well, I've read them. I think they're, you know, people can engage with them. You don't have to have necessarily like a rigorous scientific Mm -hmm. background. Uh, But one of them is about, you know, just an overview of the project. And then that one's written by Dr. Avi Loeb. And then there's another paper written by Dr. Wes Waters at Wellesley College that is just giving kind of the history of of UAP studies and and outlining our approach as well and and how we fit into that.
1: Awesome. Very interesting. So speaking of how you fit in, what about yourself? So what what specifically are you doing to help the Galileo project now? What is your title within that effort?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talked a little bit about kind of the two other branches, but the one that's most relevant to this podcast is the UAP branch. So uh, that's definitely, uh, you know, where I spend most of my time now. So within that effort, I'm working on instrumentation. So I'm on the ground building things, you know, troubleshooting hardware, debugging, all that fun stuff. Um, And I started that. Uh, four days after graduating, actually, from undergrad at Wellesley. Wow. I uh, just went right into it, and I started off just as, like, a summer research fellow. So my time was supposed to be 50% with Wellesley and 50% with Harvard. Um, I should also mention that Wellesley has a smaller subgroup within the Galileo Project Related. They call themselves Celeste, which is Galileo's daughter's name, uh, which makes sense. Uh, uh, so they have a smaller group working there as well uh, because within this UAP you know, goal, we have an observatory class system. That's, you know, what I work with now. That's your, like, i on the scale of $250,000. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, one level below that, order of magnitude below that. And that's what Wellesley is working on. So they're, you know, aiming for about $25,000, kind of like a rack mount. Uh, oh, I should mention, sorry, I should say. So you have the observatory class system, about $250,000. Uh, that's, you know, what I work with most. And then we also have Wellesley's system, which is a level below that. That's $25,000. It's a non-weatherized system, but it gives you, you know, enough things that, you know, we still have some IR cameras. We have a microphone. It's just maybe not as expensive as, you know, the highest level. Mm -hmm. Um, And then below that, we have like a rack mount system and that we're aiming for about like uh, $2,500. So that's kind of like our our three-tiered approach because, you know, we can't expect to... Uh, everyone to have, oh, okay, yeah, I have a quarter of a million dollars to give. Let me just <laughs> have this observatory class system on my roof. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone has a roof that, you know, has something that big. So, you know, we kind of make these different levels so that we can engage uh, in the best way possible, especially, you know, if there's an area where, you know, sightings start to pop up, we can bring the, the rack mount system or the Wells A system that's non-weatherized and just kind of set it up temporarily and just get some data. So that's kind of the reasoning behind those three. But yeah, just working on instrumentation and supporting the group, so I don't really have a fancy name. I'm just a research fellow, uh-huh. but...
1: <laughs> what kind of instruments are on, let's say, maybe the, the largest one there? I assume that has the most sensors. I could be wrong, but... Yeah,
0: exactly. has the most sensors. Um,
1: what are you looking for?
0: Yeah, I feel like we're just casting a wide net, because we don't really know what to look for. Mm-hmm. So, we're trying to cover all bases, so let's see if I can list all of them. Uh, so, <laughs> we have an audio system that's recording, you know, audible range, but also infrasound and ultrasound range. Then... We have an infrared camera system, and that's uh, made up. It kind of looks like, uh, it's called the Dalek. We call it Dalek. Uh kind of maybe looks like (laughs) R2-D2. You'll see pictures in in the papers, and they're probably, if you go on the Galaire Project website, you can see videos of our instrumentation, um, or some of it at least. So that's one that's on there. And that is made up of some boson cameras and infrared around the base, um, and then one on the top that's looking, you know, at the zenith kind of area location, which is like right above head, overhead. Um, and then boson detector. Oh, it's just, it's a type of camera. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a—it's like a, a company, I think. Very good at that, yeah. Uh, so then we also have a visible camera. So that's like if you sat with your eyes and looked up the sky, but in higher resolution. Uh, I'm kind of blind, so I would not uh, see as well as this camera would. But that's like 4K resolution. Um, and then we also have a tracking camera. So those are going to talk to each other. So that tracking camera, it's actually, it's, um, it's a security camera, but, you know, we're using it for... <laughs> Not security purposes. Uh, so our it just security. goes, exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, so if the infrared cameras see something interesting, if our AI algorithms, you know, say, okay, hey, this thing is weird. Uh, again, that whole question of how do you determine what is weird comes up again. That's something we have to revisit and talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, then the the camera is going to track, point to it, and then zoom in and try to get higher resolution than maybe our infrared cameras would. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what else? We have a spectrum analyzer. We have a magnetometer. We also have. Uh, we're working on a passive radar solution because we can't have the the beautiful radar that, that you guys have. Uh, and the reason we're trying to do that passively is so that we can uh, more easily uh, set up our system and not influence, you know, areas around us. It's hard if you're emitting radio signals. That's uh, it's very hard to get approval and everything for that. yeah, it's, uh, yeah exactly. So if you're passive, you're just sitting there. So it's, it's, you know, that technology is really cool, but it's still developing. So uh, very early stages of that. But I think, oh, we also have a weather station. That's really important because you need to monitor atmosphere conditions because we don't know these phenomena could also be you know related to weather as well. Mm. So I think we're just trying to do everything, you know, making no assumptions about what's already out there, um, which it, it's pretty hard because usually the way science is done. Is that you maybe have a hypothesis or some kind of ideas that are you know maybe gently guiding you to a solution you're like okay well i know i have to work within this framework or try to answer these questions um but we don't really have anything to go off of Uh, at least from a scientific point you know a big a big thing was you know do we take into account uh people like witness accounts Mm -hmm. is that something we can use scientifically to justify why we're going to this place or why we have this instrument or that instrument uh, so it gets kind of sticky it's mm-hmm. it's hard to uh to do it because then it's like you don't want to ignore the witness accounts either uh but you know trying to to set the standard for what the science approach scientific approach for uap is like is you know not something that's super trivial mm-hmm. so i think just casting a wide net letting letting the data speak for itself and you know telling us what's interesting and what's not interesting That that's interesting too is like if if the audio and cameras are going off crazy and Again, what is crazy? I don't know. Um, But if for some reason they're finding signatures that are just bizarre, but we go over maybe to our passive radar, or the magnetometer and things look, you know, sound as can be, that's also interesting Mm -hmm. because, you know, we might have some kind of phenomena there as well. So that's my long answer to your question.
1: (laughs) Does science work like that in other fields or in other examples?
0: I don't know if I know. (laughs) I think, I guess... Thinking about like computer science, I think uh, with AI, the whole point of AI is to you know not have humans make assumptions, but have the computer kind of make them. And that's definitely what we're relying on in our systems to determine like what is weird. Mm. It's like well, we humans shouldn't shouldn't be involved in that. We're heavily biased, mm-hmm. but computer systems, you know, they do a better job at, at you know you know clustering things and and grouping things and and just determining outliers. So I, I would say you know in statistics, of course, you always. Uh, are looking at data sets and and determining outliers. So in that sense, I think maybe it's similar, but the whole approach of, you know, having to, uh, if you only have witness accounts, I can't really think of any other science maybe where it's like that, but there's probably something.
1: I wonder if you could, yeah, if you had a large enough data set, you know, perhaps pull pull out some data using machine learning that was consistent across all the cases that otherwise might not be detected.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Do you think that's happening or is that happening? Um, do you know if that's happening uh, in the wider astronomy field for signal detection uh, within the data sets that we're receiving, I'll say, from further away?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think that'd be a question. I wish I knew more about like the SETI Institute, for instance, because I know like they're looking at technosignatures. Um, and I'm sure they have, you know, things that they're using to determine, you know, if something is worth looking into more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know enough to speak about it.
1: One of the one of the reasons I ask you that is because um, I think I've I've read some articles about that, and of course, the further away you get from Earth, it seems, uh, or from us, the more comfortable we are looking for life elsewhere, the more mm. scientifically acceptable it is. Why do you think that is?
0: I don't know. I would love to read those papers if you remember what they are. I don't sure. think I've come across them, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like the universe is really big. So sometimes we have to look really far to, uh, to try to see other systems that are like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it is interesting cause the, the way kind of like light works. So when you're looking farther away, you're also looking further back into time. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause you know, for non-science people listening <laughs> or watching, um, light has to travel. So if you're looking farther away, that means that the light is going to take more time to get to you. So as you look further and further away, you're like seeing that light. Well, when the light reaches you, you know, that's there was some time that had to pass Isn't... when it was being sent. So it's like uh, I think you see this in a lot of James Webb you know, imagery. You see like really red galaxies. So that's something called a redshift. So um, the universe is also expanding. So when that light is traveling, universe is expanding it's shifting to redder wavelengths mm-hmm. uh, which are longer wavelengths and because it has to cover, cover more space so it's that whole uh, play of, of you know space and time but uh, yeah I forget your original question.
1: That's okay, <laughs> I do that all the time uh, but really you know we have the SETI and SETI looks out and looks for distant radio waves and you know, maybe that just feels safer to us to think that we can look out there. And if we find something, it's not immediately threatening.
0: Yeah, okay. I think and I understand
1: your question. Look yeah. at Mars and say like maybe there's microbes there, right? And yeah. that's not very yeah, yeah, threatening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when we consider if there's something in our sky that theoretically could potentially be from elsewhere, that's a much more mm-hmm. scary thought. So.
0: Yeah, and also it's scary to think about if there's, or at least I would say it's scary. I don't know if everyone else would. Maybe they think it's cool. Uh, there's other civilizations that are more technologically advanced than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that also, you know, is playing into that whole idea of, again, like paradigms. Um, if you are seeing signatures, you know, maybe, but I guess they signatures can be threatening words hurt, too. Uh, but it's like, do they speak the same language? Like, probably not. Like, how do they communicate? So Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I do, th- I do think it's just like, again, it's, al- it's also been hard because everything that, you know, like your detectors and everything that you have used or, or seen with, you know, other fighter pilots, that's all like classified. And we're getting kind of these bits from, you know, the government reports that are coming out, but it's not enough for us to like actually scientifically evaluate, you know, the situation. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to take our own, our own data mm-hmm. to, to figure that part out.
1: And, you know, I know that can, that leads to people's ability to kind of push back and say this is silly initial nonsense or try to, you know, discourage you perhaps from uh, engaging in this field. So, you know, as you were considering kind of engaging in the Galileo project, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you said you didn't really necessarily know what you're getting into, but now <laughs> here you are, you know, on my podcast talking about it. Yeah. So um, what have, what has been, you know, you made a decision to kind of kind of lean into this a bit. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, did anyone have any conversation with you and discuss, you know, potentially what the implications of that could be or was there any pushback or your experience is kind of diving into this?
0: Yeah, and no, I think that's something I'd love to talk about, because I'm sure now as, you know, more people are, are coming into this field, it's something they may be thinking about or, or, or considering, you know, as reasons for them not to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I ever received any like official warnings or, you know, anything, um, but it was just kind of unspoken. Like, okay, uh, I guess I should say, so I was doing that independent study. And then um, that same, you know, professors, Professor Westwaters asked, you know, what I like to do with summer research with the Galileo Project, you know, working on instrumentation. So switching branches, but still under the same um, umbrella. And, you know, at that point, I had, you know, full intentions of applying to grad school that next year. So I was just thinking, you know, I mean, I did think about it. I was thinking, okay. Is my involvement? How's this? How is my involvement going to be received from people who are maybe viewing my application for grad school? Um, and I definitely had to take take a little bit of time to you know think about that and you know weigh pros and cons, because uh, I think it'd be silly to say like, oh, I don't care, it, it'll be fine. But if you kind of make this decision, you might be uh, affected for your career. Uh, or at least that's that's what I was telling myself. Uh, but eventually I, I was looking at the project and, you know, my experiences up until then had been no different than any other research, astronomy research experiences. Like the previous summer I was at Cornell working on instrumentation for, that's going to look at, uh, it's like cosmology instrumentation. So it didn't feel, the atmosphere didn't feel any different than that. So I was like, okay, well, as long as I can explain myself and, you know, the things that I'm doing are very fundamental. They're scientific. I'm, I'm developing skills in hardware, coding, debugging, all of that. And that's going to be really helpful. Um, so I just kind of thought, OK, it's going to be about framing moving forward. But also, if I'm applying to these institutions, and they're going to judge me for engaging in this topic, even though it's with the proper methodology or great methodology, that's probably not a place I want to be anyway. So I'll go ahead and let them filter themselves out, because uh, I don't I don't want to go to a place and and be surrounded by people who are not uh, encouraging of you know scientific processes. Because again, it's like nothing that we're doing is is maybe different mm-hmm. um, in terms of our like our science goals. You know, we follow all the same processes that you would if you were working on another scientific project cuz it's just it's the application is a little target, different. Yeah. yeah, the application is a little different, the targets different, but you know, who cares? Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of I just was like, you know, what, I'm going to lean into it. Um and you know, I I really I've never received any pushback. Um we were speaking a little earlier. I applied to grad school, I've been admitted to, you know, multiple places, so it seems like it's it's been well received and um I think that fear I had in my head was totally, like, self yeah. Um And I think the people that maybe do think that way, maybe they just stay quiet, which, uh, you know, that's fine. But I, I really do think that over time it's going to change a lot. I mean, just, like, talking about it to my friends uh, and family, like, they're all just so excited to hear about what's going on. And, you know, I've been really able to bond with a lot of my family members, like my, um, my grandfather, uh, or my great-grandfather was uh, worked on planes in World War II. Cool. Um, so,, uh, like, I feel like in some ways, I'm kind of, you know, engaging with that side of my family. and, you know, they've been interested in the topic for reasons because I think it kind of started out in like a, a military kind of perspective. And it's cool that What science, started
1: out with a military perspective?
0: or a led UAP kind of topic. Okay. It's like that's where they started having these uh, where they started kind of maybe, collecting science or collecting data about these objects Uh, because before that i think it had mostly been witness accounts Uh, so that's kind of the first time where they were like it's weird because our instruments said Mm -hmm. that they were kind of strange um so in some ways like i'm talking to like my grandfather who also you know was was a pilot and i think like talking to him has been has been awesome you know he's just fascinated by it um
1: has he seen anything no no
0: i wish i wish i had stories but no I don't have any, but I think it's just the idea of it. Uh, and they're just really excited that you know I I think the other point I'll make is that I think one of the reasons that the Galileo project has you know gone to where it is now is because of that Harvard name that's attached to it. So I think that has helped give it credibility, um, which you know might not have had if it was another institution, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, when I was, like, telling people about my job, I would definitely lean into that first. Like, oh, I'm doing research at Harvard. And I'd be like, okay, maybe they'll ask what I'm doing. Oh, I'm doing instrumentation. Oh, uh, instrumentation, yeah, for UAP. So I definitely, like, kind of had, I would approach that in layers for probably the first couple of weeks I was working. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, I just decided, you know what, I think this is worth speaking about. And I kind of just gained confidence in that in the mission. Uh, and I was like, okay, we're just going to lead with that. So anytime we're like out with and I'm meeting new people or acquaintances and I'm with people, for instance, like my roommates, who know what I do. Uh, and, you know, people come over, they're like, oh, yeah, what do you do for work? And we all just kind of look at each other and smile because mm-hmm. we know that my answer is going to kind of blow their mind. Uh, so I've just like leaned into that and it's it's become like really fun. And I think that's one of the ways we can, uh, at least as young people, like bring this uh, or help this discussion is to just talk about it more. And, you know, do it in a sense that isn't talking about sci-fi movies, but actually talking about, like, you know, people's jobs and and how they're engaging with it.
1: And the science. Yeah. It's incredible. Are you seeing that your friends are much more open to the topic?
0: Yeah. And I think, again, that kind of plays into, like, with time, I think it'll it'll change. Uh, But, yeah, I haven't ever, to my face at least, (laughs) received (laughs) any pushback from friends. It's all been, like, genuine interest. Mm
1: -hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, Among others... um, do you think that this is uh, a field or a topic you're going to continue to pursue? Or actually, I'll just stop and say that.
0: <laughs> That's a million-dollar question, and Avi wants to know that answer, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, no, I think, like, I don't think I ever want to, cold turkey, quit my involvement. Um, but I am also interested in other aspects of the universe. So I think I... It just kind of depends on, on what opportunities are out there. Um, again, I've kind of proven that maybe if you work on this in undergrad, it's not going to follow me into grad school. But then, you know, that same question comes up. OK, when I'm in grad school and I'm applying for postdoctor, or I, I eventually want to be a professor um, currently, that's my, that's my goal. I'll probably change it a few years. I don't know <laughs> that's that's for right now. Uh, but then it's like, OK, well, that if I do it in grad school, will that follow me there. Uh, So it's something I have to think about, but, you know, there's so many great mentors in the project that I've been able to kind of have these conversations with, especially when I was applying, just like, how do I word things or whatever? And they they really helped me uh, with that and, you know, lean into the science aspect of it. Uh, So, but, you know, I I can't help uh, but want to continue doing the work. In some capacity mm-hmm. so I think it'll just depend on uh, what can I write a thesis about because that does kind of or dissertation about yeah because uh, it does kind of have to be this uh, package like project that you do so mm-hmm. uh, but I, I'm keeping the idea open I'm, I'm just trying to go into it with an open mind and uh, we'll see we'll see where that leads me awesome
1: <laughs> what would you recommend to uh people that were in your shoes a few years ago that are, you know, making decisions about where they want to go to school or what they want to study. You know, not saying you have to say you should look into UAP or this, but you know, you, you basically stuck to your guns and, you know, had the bravery to have this conversation uh, against, you know, the popular culture and against um, the skepticism out there. So, you know, what advice or what would you offer to anyone um, younger than you looking into this? going into college
0: yeah I have like so much advice I feel like so many things I wish I could, like you know could have told myself I feel like it's easier to speak to my younger self so I'll do that and then if this resonates with anyone that's amazing Uh, I would just say like explore as much as you can even if you think you know what you want to do just sign up for that weird class sign up for something fun uh, that you might not have you might not have any other chance to engage with and if you like it even if you're not great at it just keep trying and keep pursuing it uh and i think that's that's kind of what got me t- into astronomy but even then when it comes to like graduate school um i think you know evaluate your goals and if graduate school fits into them that's awesome and and you should pursue it but uh by no means you know not everything needs to have a an advanced degree behind it so even if you know if you don't want to go to college uh just do find things that you're passionate about and, and try to engage with them uh but also you know acknowledge that what your goals are and just try to work towards them. So I think uh, you know I wish I wish I could could go back and tell myself where I am now because I think I would just be utterly shocked
1: too, um, little Ryan shocked.
0: yeah, exactly okay. I'm like when I was eight I wanted to be on Broadway <laughs> <And> I'm <laughs> like I don't want that anymore uh, but I think that's okay you know it's okay to like change what you want to do and it's okay to change your mind. Um, and it's okay to, you know, maybe do work that not everyone in your family or in your circle maybe, like, is going to approve of. Obviously, you know, you should check in with people and make sure that, you know, it's not, like, a, anything too
1: wild. But <laughs> <laughs> there are some boundaries.
0: There, there are boundaries. But, you know, when it comes to topics like this that um, have ridicule, like, look into why that ridicule is there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And don't, you know read a bunch of articles and just conglomerate their opinions together. Uh, Really think about like what your belief system is. So Mm. I think that is really important, not worrying about how people are going to perceive it. If you're passionate about something, frame it in a way that it's going to be acceptable to others. And if it's not acceptable to them, maybe take that as a sign that that's not somewhere
1: where you want to be anyway. Mm. That's great advice. Awesome. So where is the Galileo project today? You know, I, they're they're building sensors, you're building sensors, you have a couple different types, you have a big expensive one, and you're working to bring them the cost down mm-hmm. and make it more scalable. Um, have you guys started like making what I would call like production detections or are you still kind of in a testing phase right now?
0: Yeah, so I would say, you know, straight up, we're definitely in the testing phase right now, uh, but that's the most important phase. So uh, the terminology we've been using is we're in phase one. So we have this, our first observatory system. Uh, we had it installed on top of the uh, Harvard College observatory roof for a while. Uh, we were just you know testing that everything, like the hardware is behaving as we're expecting, um, and then we were able to move to another instrument site, which uh, I'm not allowed to say where. It's classified. <laughs> classified. <laughs> <laughs> but that is where we can you know do a little bit more rigorous testing um, but yeah, so definitely just like making sure things are, are running, you know, sometimes you need to go out there and uh, unplug some USB cables and re-plugging them in. So we have to troubleshoot, like, why did that happen uh, and thinking about, you know, what that says in terms of our technology capability, how hands off is it, how hands on is it. So just determining all of those things mm. is, is really important in this phase one. Uh, but also, you know, we have a science traceability matrix that says all of our goals. You know areas where we want to make sure these instruments are performing up to their specifications. Mm -hmm. So just referring back to that always, uh, which that'll be in our paper that are our papers that are coming out. uh, But just referring back to that and making sure, okay, we said we wanted to get this resolution of objects. Uh, We want to be able to see objects moving like this fast or this far away. Uh, Just making sure that we're actually seeing that. So and you define all
1: those parameters in some of your upcoming papers.
0: Exactly. So those are very you know they're detailed and they're lined out, just like they would for any other you know Mm -hmm. scientific project so i think that is really important so we've kind of put a pause um or not put a pause we've just kind of taken this opportunity to uh now that things are kind of going to make sure we're doing the preliminary analysis and again performing up to spec so uh that involves a lot of observing birds and planes (laughs) for right now but i mean we have the cameras rolling so if anything decides to give us a visit uh i guess we'll have it but it's just you know the like like we were kind of speaking about a little bit uh how you determine that something is weird or anomalous we're gonna let the like the ai, AI algorithms handle that for us Got it. so in order for those you know algorithms to operate they need to have collect large amounts of data first so they need to see a ton of planes and a ton of birds and a ton of insects. Uh, just and so that they can cluster them together in groups. And then once that clustering starts to happen, you can kind of see, okay, maybe there's a couple of points that are just hanging out over here. Let's go and see what those are about. And then that's where you know we'd maybe start to uh, go into what we would say like anomaly detection. It. Uh, so it'll be definitely like a continuous process, but I, I would say we're we're definitely in like the testing phase right now. Uh, but you know, taking all this into consideration and we're hoping soon. Uh, you know, I think our, our goal right now is by August, where we uh, where we've kind of started the papers, the introductory papers outlining, like, the hardware of the system and the goals last year uh, to kind of have our first round of papers about, like, data and our interpretation and, and methodologies there. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, so but... That's
1: in 2024, the fall? So.
0: Yeah, so I guess... Depends on on what, journals, what journals we submit to and what their processes are like for feedback, sure. and then how long they take to publish. But I would say, hopefully, um, so it'll be like a well, batch of papers come out, and then a year later they'll be supplemented with more.
1: Got it. So yeah. So the papers I don't think are necessarily part of phase one, but uh, that kind of validation and testing that you talked about is phase one. Is phase two more of just kind of the the data collection and waiting to catch something, or is that what phase two would be?
0: Yeah, so I should clarify. I guess phase one is is more, uh, the phases is more in reference to, like, what hardware we're using. Yeah. So phase one includes, like, the whole process of designing and whatever. So all of our papers that are coming out are about our phase one instrumentation. Got it. So it's outlining, you know, hardware, what we're using, all that, um, so that, you know, the whole point of this, and, and for, you know, good science studies, you want to make sure that your studies are uh, able to be replicated. So we want to outline all the details so that if someone, another group or u- another university would pick up our paper, follow everything exactly, they would hope to get, you know, the same results that we're mm-hmm. getting. That's the whole point um, of, of these papers is to outline, you know, what we're doing, being transparent about it um, as much as we can. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of phase one. And then we're kind of thinking about, OK, like phase 1.5, maybe we replace. So, for instance, one thing we're, we're talking about now is we have... Um, this Dalek camera, which I was talking about earlier, which is made up of infrared cameras, you know, is it better to have one big one or two smaller ones spaced apart? So things like that, you just have to test and kind of see what happens. Uh, and you can, you know, calculate theory and everything all day, but it really comes down to, you know, when you're out there, what, yeah. are, you gonna, what, are, you get, what are you getting? Uh, and what can you do? So, you know, just making sure our pipelines are, are running smoothly um, and that the hardware is behaving expect- expect- as expected mm-hmm. is is... You know the highlight of phase one but uh for phase two you know that's adding a couple uh instruments so um i guess i spoke uh spoke excitedly the magnetometer isn't technically part of our our phase one yet um but it's something i work on so mm-hmm. i i it's in the works so it's almost like phase <laughs> 1.5 it's almost like in the middle but like that and then we're adding a spectrometer uh so it's just a couple of things that are, are you know a little bit further uh further ahead so that's like kind of phase 2 will be a, like an upgrade to our systems or thinking about you know t- again technology is is always improving i'm talking about those infrared cameras well that same company just came out with a plus version mm-hmm. it's more expensive but it has better resolution and all of this so it's like okay well you know where do where do our limits lie do we need something that's better do we not need something that's better mm-hmm. so it's just a lot of those like little questions that we're okay. trying to answer right now
1: so so things are progressing as expected. Yeah. You know, people shouldn't be waiting for some massive announcement tomorrow or anything. Yeah, crazy, but...
0: exactly. No, it'll take it'll take a while to get there, just like I said, because, you know, we are trying to do this very rigorously and, and scientifically. So even if we see something that doesn't quite make sense, uh, we're going to wait for our AI algorithm to tell us that, not mm-hmm. just with our eyes.
1: Wait for the so... scientific process. To actually...
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and making sure, uh, you know, we're referencing all the other instruments. Uh, you know, like we saw like a... a uh, a bird fly by that was like in a weird trajectory and we're all like, Oh, that's so cool and exciting. But it's like, Oh yeah, we can see it's a bird. We can hear it's a bird. You know? So it, uh, it humbles you very much. Uh, And, you know, separating that, I think, uh, you know, not everyone on the team is, is, you know, believing in the same outcome, right? You know, there, there are some like, I guess you would say like Mm non-believers, um, which I think is important to have on a project like this to make sure, you know, you're doing it right. And you're incorporating everyone's opinions and viewpoints and, into the uh, approach and discussion. But, uh, I mean, I guess I would say I just hope that, I can't say what, what I hope that we find because I don't know, but I just hope that this sets a standard that you can do science, that is looking into phenomena, whatever that phenomena may be.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm really happy yeah. you're looking into it and yeah. taking an interest in it.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I mean, thank you for you know bringing this to light and obviously it would have never happened without you know the brave... The bravery of many people who have had experiences and witness accounts coming forward and and really fighting for this to get the attention I think it deserves. So
1: also well we'll be watching and good luck.
0: Yay, thank you.
1: Thanks. <laughs>